girls in the Paris night All the girls in the pale moonlight All the girls with a shopping bags All the girls with a washing rags All the girls on the telephones All the girls standing on This is Rumble, and I'm Michael Moore. After four days of watching the Senate Committee confirmation hearings of Judge Amy Coney Barrett, it has brought me (laughs) to a new low. The sense of her entitlement that the Republicans all feel that she has to this job when she's finally voted on on the Senate floor, it'll be perhaps less than a week before the election. They're rushing this through so fast, all because of their hatred of Obamacare, but mostly because of their nearly 50-year-long battle to get rid of Roe v. Wade, the right to have an abortion, should you so choose. That's what's going to happen here, folks. You know it, I know it. Uh, No matter how much Judge Barrett tries to twist and turn, BS her way, lie, whatever. It's too bad she just doesn't come right out and say what the intent is here. To take away from women their right to control their own bodies. And the sweet irony to the right wing that they're going to make that happen through putting a woman on the Supreme Court who agrees with them. I decided for my podcast here today to not talk about that for the next 20 minutes or so, but to read you something I wrote back in 2011. It's from a book of short stories uh, that I wrote called Here Comes Trouble, Stories from My Life. And each of these 24 short stories are based on some incident or something that actually did happen in my life, but they are based on them. They're not, um, these are not pieces of reporting as much as they are stories I wanted to tell, things that I'd lived through. And in the case of the story that I'm going to read you here today um, about a friend of mine who needed to have an abortion back when it was illegal in the state of Michigan, uh, the year was 1971, 72, and um, there were only a couple of states, California and New York, where abortion was legal. And so if you wanted to get an abortion, if you lived in the other states, you had to find your way to those states and be able to afford to do that. We're about to enter a time where this is once again, I think, going to be illegal. And so I wanted to share a story, especially for younger listeners, um, so you can hear what it was like a little bit in this in my own personal story. 
what it was like back then when it was illegal to have control over your own reproductive organs. I mean, the state, the government forced you to have a baby, whether you wanted to uh, or not. So thanks for being here with me today, tonight. As I read this uh, to you, I've changed all the names. None of these names are of the actual people to protect their privacy and their identity. And I've, I've changed some of the places and things that were people back in the Flint area. If somebody was going to try to figure out um, the identity of this person, I had to protect this individual. And so there's no way you can glean anything from what I'm about to read that is going to um, undo that for that individual. So um, just, just a, a sort of a, a bit of a, a warning and a, and a lesson um, before we begin. This nonfiction short story of mine is called Zoe. Her boyfriend called me from the hospital. The abortion, Mike, they botched it. We never made it to New York. Abortion was illegal a crime in Michigan in 1971, as it was in most states. If you got pregnant, nine months later, you had a baby. And that was that. I was closer to Zoe than I was to perhaps any other girl in high school. She was what you would call a best friend. She had a big curly fro of hippie hair that landed wherever it damned well pleased. She played piano, but was also a prodigy on the violin, which she would only play while barefoot. She smoked pot on occasion in her parents' house, and on rare nights, she would take LSD to, quote, free myself from the fascists around me. Zoe was a free spirit, well-read, and not afraid to speak her mind. I thought, someday, she'll change this world which made her choice of a boyfriend in Tucker all the more puzzling. Tucker was completely clueless and looked like he'd be happier sticking a blade between your ribs. He was from the tough neighborhood in town. His favorite pastime was picking fights, and though Zoe tried to reform him, his love of fisticuffs kept his dance card filled with numerous school suspensions. He treated basic common sense as if it were a sissy thing, and he knew little of the world outside his trailer park. I'd be surprised if he had ever traveled more than five miles from his home in his lifetime. But Tucker, Tucker had the smile of the Sundance kid and the eyes of James Dean, and Zoe loved him madly. He wore leather shit-kicking boots and had a chain attached to his belt loop, but with Nothing on the other end of that chain because he was too broke to afford a wallet and poor still to have anything to put in it. A cigarette was always dangling out of the side of his mouth and he had the uncanny knack of being able to inhale and blow out the smoke without ever touching the camel. Tucker would wait on Zoe hand and foot and she was generous with her body in return. This one Tucker, the designation by most guys as the luckiest dude at Davison High. And he was still a freshman. Zoe was a senior, uh, like me. And I was, 
I guess, crazy in love with her. I made sure that she never detected that, though, not even the mildest inkling of my feelings. And if Tucker ever suspected how I felt, uh, I would surely see the sharp end of his jackknife uh, being flung my way. So he had no clue. Either I was that good of an actor, or it was just pathetically unbelievable that someone like me would even think of having any designs on Zoe. And it was even more implausible that she would ever see me as anything resembling boyfriend material. After all, I came from the pack of guys in high school who were always seen in flight from any oncoming females at the school dance. I was no James Dean. I was more Jimmy Dean, you know, the sausage king. One day to impress her, I, I told her I could play cello when she was putting together a protest recital outside the Army Recruitment Center in Flint. And I thought to myself, come on, how hard could this cello be? It's only got four strings. I borrowed a cello and I used the bow to run it back and forth at random, <laughs> never really hitting the right note. And she looked at me and laughed and accused me later of eating all the special brownies. Tucker had nothing to worry about, though, with me, and Zoe appreciated having me as a friend, like the one guy in school who wasn't going to hit on her. I didn't want to let her down, so I never made my feelings known. Of course, there was nothing noble about denying your feelings, but then who was I going to share that with at that age? Ann Landers? The cafeteria lady? Having now admitted to all of you, my dear listeners, that I possessed such desire, I will also admit that having a friend like Zoe was a blessing. A greater blessing than one could hope for in trying to survive the misery of adolescence. I could call her any time, day or night, and if she wasn't banging Tucker, I was free to talk to her as long as I wanted. I lived in town, so I could easily walk over to her house. And I was there far more than Tucker ever was since he lived out in the country and did not have a driver's license. Zoe and I grew very close and shared everything with each other, you know, the way that you do with that special friend in high school. You lie around in the rec room or the bedroom for all hours of the day and night, pouring through every subject imaginable, who was born and who, which classes sucked, ways to avoid the parents, how to help the kid down the street who was being punched by his dad every night, how to remove Nixon from office, playing the new Moody Blues album, sneaking into an X-rated movie, A Clockwork Orange, Midnight Cowboy, taking turns writing verses of poems that would become lyrics to songs that Zoe would write the music for and sing to me. There were those times that she and Tucker broke up for days at a time, and I would momentarily contemplate the opening presented to me. And at one such tear-filled evening, for a second, or, you know, maybe the whole night. She contemplated it, too. It was never spoken about again. Tucker would return, and their strange saga would continue. The couple that had nothing in common other than the perfection of their own bodies. It was a Sunday night when Zoe called and said she needed to meet me somewhere private. I drove over and picked her up, and we went for a drive out to a remote area called the Hogbacks. I'm pregnant, she said, as soon as the door slammed shut. I carefully backed out of the driveway, my heart racing, and she started to sob. I can't believe I was this stupid, she said. 
I can't have a baby. She then fell onto my shoulder. I am so, so sorry, I said, the way, you know, a best friend would say such a thing. And then I paused to catch my breath and do the math. The math seemed okay. Don't beat yourself up, I said. This happens, even to smart people. Her sobbing continued, and I I tried to keep my eyes on the road. It's okay. Don't cry. I'm here. She continued to cry, and so I pulled over, and I held her. You know, the way a best friend would hold a best friend. I have to end it, she said, sputtering out the words. And what, I thought. Tucker? Her, Her life? No, please, God. You mean the pregnancy, I said, in a tone that didn't make it a question. Yes, she said, but how am I going to end it? She told me that when she got the pregnancy test at Planned Parenthood, they explained to her that abortion, at least in our state, was illegal. Well, I said, maybe your parents know a doctor who could. I can't tell them, she said. I can't, I can't let them know something like this. I can't let them down. Your parents, I said, more than any other parents that I know, they'd understand. No, no, she responded. This would crush them. I have to take care of this myself. You can't try to abort the fetus yourself, I said. I wouldn't do that, she assured me. You know, I said, abortion is legal in New York. Now, Though Catholic, I had no moral conflict in making this suggestion. I knew that a fertilized egg was not a human being. And yes, you know, I was a practicing Catholic. I went to Mass every Sunday. But but this is what I actually believed as a teenager, and I believe it to this day. Human life begins when the fetus can survive outside the womb. Until then, it is a form of life, but not a human being. A sperm is life. After all, it's not swimming around with a battery pack on its back. An egg is life. A fertilized egg is life. A fetus is life. But none of those are a human being. None of these are human life, just as a seed or a stem is not a flower. When you are born, you are a human being. That's why your driver's license says your birthday is the day that you came out of your mother's womb, not the day you were conceived. Some people, I guess, just like to be the uterus police, the bossy pants of other women's reproductive parts, and that has always struck me as really, really weird. I'll help you, I said to her, if that's what you want to do. Thank you, Mike she said as she dried her eyes. We could drive to Buffalo, I said. It's probably not that far. Or we could go to New York City. I mean, I know the city kind of well. Of course, I was making offers I had no clue if I could even deliver on. For instance, how would I get to New York City and not have my parents notice? That was never going to happen. But Buffalo was possible. I started to plot it out in my head. I could leave for school at 7 a.m. and we could be in Buffalo by noon. 
How long would the procedure take? I didn't even know exactly what the procedure was, but let's say, I don't know, three hours? Then another five hours back to near Flint? I could be home by 8 p.m., late for dinner to be sure, but suffering no more than a stern word or two. I have to tell Tucker, she said. And the bad idea buzzer rang in my head. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, he has to He has to know. I drove her over to Tucker's trailer and waited outside while she went in to deliver the news. Fifteen minutes later, they emerged from the trailer, arm in arm, and I sighed. They got in the front seat with me. There were no bucket seats back in those days. The three of us in the front seat with Zoe in the middle. Thanks, ma'am, for offering to help, Tucker said as he reached out to put his arm on my shoulder. Hey, I said, no problem. I'm sure you guys would do the same for me if I got pregnant. Zoe laughed. Tucker continued, I was thinking maybe we should keep the baby, said the high school freshman without a driver's license, loving the swagger and the idea that he had actually produced something in his life. Yeah, well, that's not happening, Zoe said, shutting him down and relieving me. We drove over to the A&W for root beers and fries and further planning as to how to end the unplanned pregnancy. In the coming days, I did the research and found the most reputable abortion clinics in New York City. I planned out our entire trip, one that we would take with my parents' permission, though they would know nothing about what we were really up to, nothing about the abortion. We would stay at my aunt's house on Staten Island. I told my mother that I wanted to go to New York for the weekend because I was considering going to college there. Well, we can't afford that, she replied without shame. Well, I've, I've checked into some scholarships and, and I'm thinking I'm, I might have a good chance. I, I looked into Fordham. Jesuits, mom. Good, right? <laughs> Here I was playing the Catholic card again on my parents. And dang, if it doesn't always work. My mom's sister had married a man in New York City who went to Fordham. And I told her that would open a door for me. I promised I'd be gone for the weekend and no longer would miss no school. And you'll stay with Aunt Lois? Absolutely, I said. My parents liked Zoe, and as their radar could detect no carnal scent in either direction between us, they did not consider her a threat. I got Zoe and Tucker all excited about what we could do in New York and how we could hang out. We can go see Hare and we can go see Joni Mitchell. But my parents had too long to think about this idea, and within days, they put the kibosh to it. I put up quite a fight, but there was no way to win this one. And they wanted to know, who was this Tucker fellow? Hey, Zoe said to me, don't feel bad. You gave it a good shot. Maybe we should just go back to the Buffalo plan. Sure, I said, somewhat defeated. Sounds good. At this point, Zoe and Tucker, though, began to realize that in getting an abortion, three's a crowd. So they told me they would take this thing over from this point on. I said, yeah, I think that makes sense. I lent them all the cash that I had, 50 bucks, uh, to add to the stash of what they were scrounging together to pay for the car ride and for the abortion in Buffalo. On the day that I knew that they were leaving, I went to school as if it were any normal day. But my mind was elsewhere. I mean, one's thoughts don't normally drift toward Buffalo, but I couldn't do much else that day but worry about my best friend's safety and her well-being. 
It was after dinner when the phone rang. My sister answered. Mike, it's Tucker. I went to the phone knowing that they had returned by now. Hey, Tucker. The abortion, he said, whispering out of breath. And if I didn't know it was Tucker, I'd I'd say he was crying. Mike, they botched it. We never made it to New York. We didn't go to Buffalo. We're in Detroit. Shit, I said a bit too loud. What are you doing in Detroit? How is she? Not not good, he said, now clearly in tears. Mike, Mike, help me. She's bleeding pretty bad. I don't know what to do. Where are you? I asked, trying not to scream or cry myself. I got her to a hospital. Somewhere here in Detroit. It was just awful. Awful. God, I don't want to lose her. Tucker just broke down at that point. I was unable to swallow. The lump in my throat grew into a full choke. I cupped my hand over the phone and swung the cord around the wall from the dining room into the kitchen so that no one in my house could hear me or see me. I tried to keep it together and figured out what I needed to do. Tucker, what do the doctors say? They say she's lost a lot of blood. She, she, goes, she goes in and out. They won't let me in there. I'm 15. I'm sure they've called the cops by now. I don't know what to do. He broke down uncontrollably. Okay, listen, I said. Listen, pull yourself together. I'm getting in the car right now. I'll be there in less than an hour. If the cops show up, say nothing. Say you want a lawyer and just keep repeating that line, no matter what they say. And if they'll let you in there, hold her hand and let her know she's not alone. And tell her I'm coming. Okay, okay. I'm so sorry, man. This was my idea. We didn't have the money for Buffalo. Someone told us there was a safe place in Detroit, someplace cheap. It was wrong from the minute we got there. I I just should have turned around and left. I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry, man. Please, please, please forgive me. Right now, none of that mattered. I shouted upstairs to my parents that I was going to go hang out with Tucker and Zoe, and I'd be back in a couple of hours. Back by 10, my mom shouted. Yeah, 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 10. Uh, bye. I tore down M15 to Clarkston and got an I-75 and hit the gas. At times, the speedometer read 90. The V8 engine in the Impala had me in Detroit in 52 minutes. I followed the signs to the hospital, parked the car in the emergency room lot, and ran in. Tucker was there, his eyes all red. It's okay, man. It's okay, I told him, and I hugged him. I asked the nurse if I could go see Zoe, and she said no. I asked about her condition. Are you a relative? She asked. I'm her brother, I said, without thinking. And where are your parents? Where are yours? I snapped back at her, realizing instantly that this was not going to serve me well. I changed my tune immediately. Look, uh, look, I'm sorry I said I didn't mean that. I'm just sorry. I'm upset. I'm 19. She's 18. We don't want to involve or upset our parents with this, if that's okay. I hope you understand. 
The BS just started flowing smoothly enough, but the tears that had formed in my eyes were real. Okay, fine, she said, filing away my insult for later retribution, I'm sure. Just sit over there. I'll see if a doctor can come and speak to the two of you. We waited nearly an hour before the resident came out looking for us. Which one of you is family? I am, I said. Okay, let me just say this. This was the stupidest thing you could have done. These back alley abortionists are not doctors. You know that, right? They have no medical training whatsoever. They do this only to make money and take advantage of people like you. It's, 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 all, it's all we could afford, Tucker inserted unnecessarily. The doctor paused and looked at Tucker and, and tried to assess just exactly who this hoodlum was. The doctor responded, it is illegal. And he hit every one of those words as if he was hitting Tucker's face. You may have killed her, but you didn't. She's going to recover. You took an enormous risk. What exactly is her condition right now? I asked, hoping to end the doctor's lecture. She's cut up inside. Her uterus and her cervix. It also looks like they use some form of ammonia. So there seems to be some burns in there too. We've stopped the bleeding and we're now caring for the inner wall linings and she's in a bit of shock. We have her resting now and sedated and she's getting proper attention. Are your parents on the way? Yes, I lied. Uh, They should be here soon. The doctor shot another look over at Tucker. You care at all about to know whether or not she's carrying the baby? he said, without adding the implied punk at the end of the sentence. Uh, yeah, sure, Tucker said without looking at the doctor. The baby's gone, he said, using the word baby for the second time for effect to hurt Tucker. It hurt me. It's not a baby, I said quietly to the doctor. She was 10 weeks pregnant. It was a fetus. If Michigan wasn't so backward, she wouldn't be lying in there like that right now. That's all I'm mad about. Thank you for helping her, though, sir. He did not appreciate this little diatribe and simply turned away and went back into the ER. Uh... Are her parents really coming? Tucker asked, panicked. No, no, but we have to call them, Tucker. She's going to be here, I'm sure, at least for tonight. I don't know, but they're going to be frightened when she doesn't come home. We have to call them, and I'll try to help when they get here. I went to the payphone and called her parents' collect. I told them not to worry. Zoe was okay, but she was in the hospital in Detroit, and she had come down here to terminate a pregnancy. There was crying and cursing, and I told them I was sorry. I didn't know. I thought Tucker had called them. I drove to the hospital as soon as Tucker called me. I said I would stay with Zoe until they got there. When they arrived, I stood between them and Tucker to ward off any violence, and I asked everyone to please try and focus on Zoe, and we can yell at each other later. Her mother spoke to the nurse, then the doctor, and they allowed her and her husband back in the room. In a few minutes, they sent for her, quote, brother, 
meaning me. I looked at Tucker, who just seemed lost and more in need of a babysitter or a mother of his own at the moment. I followed the nurse into the room, and she pulled back the curtain to reveal Zoe, half awake in bed, her hand being held by her mother, her dad still glancing and glaring my way, wanting to punch someone. Hi, Zoe, I said, and went over to her other side and took her other hand. I'm so sorry, she mumbled. We made a mistake. Don't think about that now, I said. The doctor said you're you're doing fine. You just need to rest. Your mom and dad are here and everything's going to be all right. Thank you, she whispered, her throat all raspy. You're my... She broke down crying. There was no real word with which to finish that sentence, none that adequately described our relationship. Or if there were a word, it could not be spoken in that room. I helped her finish the sentence. Friend, I said, smiling. I'm your friend. Yes, yes, always, she said back. Zoe soon broke up with Tucker. After we graduated, I became consumed with what I was doing, and I'd run for office and got elected, and Zoe and I, we still hung out a lot, still listened to music. We shared our most intimate feelings with each other. She signed up to go to community college, but halfway through the second semester, she dropped out, and she and her family moved out west. We stayed in touch by writing letters, but she was into adventure and wandering. And that is what she did. And along the way, we lost touch. I last saw Zoe over a decade ago. She was playing in a recital in Chicago. And she told me she got part-time work playing in various orchestras and symphonies. They made her wear shoes. She had lived in L.A. for a while and played in the backup string sections on pop and rock records. It was good to catch up and go over old times. The man she was with now seemed nice, but a few words. I did notice that he had the same chain that Tucker used to have, hanging from his belt loop. I left our reunion feeling good about Zoe and the life that she carved out for herself, and I was somewhat relieved when I saw that her boyfriend's chain was clearly connected to something substantial in his pocket. They are hell-bent this week and next week on putting someone on the Supreme Court who is going to take that free will choice away from us, away from all women. This is wrong, my friends. This is absolutely wrong. And we've come so far. We've made so many great changes. Things are better These days, after 50 years of struggle, whether it's the women's movement, whether it's the civil rights movement, now the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, the LGBTQ movement, the peace movements, all the movements. And there's still so much farther to go. This will be a huge, huge step backward. Please call your senator. Call the other senators. Make noise. Make a lot of noise about this. If we lose, commit yourself. 
to fighting to restore these rights to women. You can call the U.S. Senate any day, any time of day, 202-225-3121. I'm going to make a call every day between now and when they hold the vote next week. Please do the same. Thank you for letting me read this story from my life to you. This is Michael Moore, and this is Rumble. Thank you. All the girls working overtime Telling you everything is fine All the girls in the beauty shops Girls' tongues catching the raindrops All the girls that you'll never see Forever a mystery all the girls with their secret ways All the girls who have gone astray Be careful how you bend Be careful where you send Careful how you end me Be careful with me be careful how you bend me Be careful